0: I think intuition definitely comes up more often in science than in math um in science you your goal is to to find something useful in math you want to find something that is true so so it's, it's it, it comes as so intuition comes up more often in science. The question you asked is about the difference between or uh, and the relation between competence and um pragmatism. I think there is there's a balance to it. Uh, fundamentally, these two concepts are different. Um, as the current understanding of how people do science, or there's a not new, um, new-ish field of science of science, um, the, the current uh, understanding is that we would like to think people who do research, uh, researchers, uh, as having an um, intrinsic quality as how good they are. We can understand that as competence. And there is other things, for example, um, uh, for example, performance as of um, how how many papers you produce and things like that. Uh, but again, there are definitely more than two things. For example, how external things affect you. I, I think there are many external things that can affect your career and you do need to consider that uh, so as as um, so, so you need to consider um, being pragmatic in a sense, but also keep it to yourself. Try to produce things you value most. For example, high quality research. Um, you need to find different people take different position on on, on these two topics. But I think you need to just you need to find your own balance. Um, the reason why people need to be pragmatic is that to survive in the current academia, you need to be able to make a name for yourself and also get money so you can hire more students and, and things like that. And, and then you, you get to pr- produce more papers and do more important research. But you cannot get lost into it and just ch- to chase the fame or chase the money. And, and, and instead, you don't really do much of the fundamental field-changing research. So I think it's the question to everybody who do research that's how pragmatic and um, do so-called pure, like before, like in, in, in the earliest sense, how to be a good researcher.
1: Hey, everyone. I'm going to start today's conversation with a little PSA on Gaussian processes. Now, I know a lot of people when they're trying to get into Gaussian processes, they're immediately uh, shuffled towards the great book by Resmussen Williams called Gaussian Processes for Machine Learning. But I'm going to suggest something a little bit different. If you haven't actually started Gaussian processes, uh, there are some better texts to be learning, in my opinion. Um, And one of them is... uh, Mark Ebden's work on Gaussian processes, a quick introduction. Um, I'll pop it up on the screen right now. And uh, it shows you everything from like uh, uh, regression classification and then uh, dimensionality reduction, which is uh, very useful for building some of the intuition that we might want for uh, Ruta's work, who's here today. Um, You can also check out David Duvenot's doctoral thesis. I'll also pop that up. It's just a beautiful document. Um, And those are great ways to get started understanding Gaussian processes. And then once you're sort of in the loop more, uh, Resmussen-Williams is definitely the way to go. Um, but anyway, for people trying to just sort of hop on board with some of the more technical aspects of a conversation on Gaussian processes, I really would suggest this Mark Ebden work. It's a fantastic introduction. Um, but with that, uh, today's guest, we have Ruta Jung from Duke University and Ruta recently co-authored this really cool article on uh, manifold learning and manifold regression using GPs. He did it with Simon Mack and David Dunson, who previously have been on the show. Um, so obviously a cool dude. Um, and But more importantly, Ruta actually has this like really sweet website. And so um, talking about like the intersection of math and science and things like that. And so um, obviously I wanted to talk about that first. And also uh, basically last night was pretty much... Uh, until about midnight, I was having a man versus EC2 battle, so um, I wouldn't mind easing into these things a little bit more. So, Ruda, welcome to the show. And yeah, we'll ease into things before we talk about, let's talk about the intersection of science and math um, before we get into that matrix, variant, Gaussians, and uh, Grassman manifolds and all that. Um, so you have this website. I'm, po- I'm going to pop it up here because uh, people need to see this, and I'll have a link in the description below. Um but again, welcome to the show. And I'm just start popping in some of these great quotes that you have, because these are things that I want to talk about. Is that all right?
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Ben.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I was going through it, and it looked it, – uh, you had this Wikipedia page where it seems like it's halfway between a blog and a wiki. Um, and <sighs> I really like some of the ideas, and um, I want to give this its dedicated time. Well, that-
0: let me talk a bit about my wiki first. So, so, um, uh, so, so first, I do have a personal website. It's called ruda.ct, and my, I mean, I, I started building my wiki before my, uh, building my personal website, and there was much more content in the web- wiki. Um The goal of my wiki is just to—it's basically a place where I keep all my notes. Um So I have all these paper notes from underground and just figure out if they're gonna just leave on um, the shelf, it probably will not be useful. So I have this huge um, project trying to digitize it into computers so I can search, it. it's much more efficient. So uh, then I figure, um, well, because all these basic knowledge are, uh, for example, math, physics and stuff are uh, most fundamental, so why don't you just put it online and so everybody can use it? I mean, most of the use is intended for me to say, um, what is the definition of this, and then just search for it. Then I can just find when I have a freshest memory of that context. Um, then uh, so, so that's the basic idea. But uh, um, still, so that's the most the con- majority of the content on the wiki. Uh, but uh, also, as Glenn noticed, I also have some more philosophical thinkings posted uh, uh, as articles on on, on that. Um, yeah, so so that's that's basically the structure of the wiki.
1: Yeah, I, I was uh, very pleasantly surprised when I started reading through because um, I think the reason original reason I went through was because I usually just check out people's websites just to um, see if I can get more of an intuition on their research. And then when I came across this and saw some of the initial quotes, like, oh, my, we need to have a separate conversation about these things. Um, but yeah, um, so should we just so we just hop in and start uh, start talking? OK, cool. So um, I, I have his his quotes right here uh, Um But he has this uh, first quote that says, mathematics, sorry, I'll I'll preface this with, I think this is heavily related to some of the things we've been talking about on the show previously about the interaction between uh, inductive and deductive reasoning, so that formalized reasoning that's needed in mathematics and, for example, coding. Um, And I'll just read the quote now because it's good. Um, Mathematics makes your reasoning rigorous, but intuition makes you smart. Getting useful general results from a simple model is called smart. Mathematics provides universally correct answers, but never directly useful. Intuition and generalization help get extremely useful results, even though they're not always correct. Um, and so, one, I think this, do you think this intuition aspect is really, uh, is undervalued in scientific researchers, where uh, the value between mathematical rigor versus essentially intuition?
0: Um. I mean, it 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 really depends on the researcher. I I I mean, this the, the thing. I mean, this this thing is uh, like I wrote down a while ago. When I was I mean during my PhD, and I think I thought about it when I was like trying to figure out what I'm gonna do for my for my academic career. So I have this thinking th- thoughts. But I mean, as I do know more about how people do research, I, I figure. It's it's a very complex uh, uh, subject. Say, um, um, I so is intuition undervalued? I I mean it may be, but it's not a blanket term. I, I think some people do value intuition in their research, but um, oftentimes it's not. You don't see that many research papers that just shows. Hey, this is a the, the, this is a good intuition this is there's something right to it you don't really see that kind of papers often they are rare if there are um usually what this is is maybe i mean many people do have smart ideas uh, like for example good intuitions but they would dress it up into technical terms so that it's more theoretically founded putting it for example using uh, for example you find a term that has a somebody's. A name attached to it. It sounds much smarter than you actually say, say it out What's the actual intuition be, behind it? So, so that's the, this dressing of dressing up of intuition make it less obvious. But I do think there are smart ideas out there, but this tendency tends to. Is that something about academic research? Because people tend to think intuitive ideas are less valuable than if it has a specific term or like named concept to it.
1: Yeah, definitely. It it reminds me of, um, and I've mentioned this several times before, um, there's this Rad, Radford Neal paper, and I think he's talking about slice sampling. And he just writes out his intuition on why it works, as in like why it has the required properties, um, like the Markov properties and things like that that you need. Um, and, but it, it's not some words he's saying like, Oh, here's all these equations that make it work. He literally just writes in words for pages about why this makes sense. And I f- found that like, it was a really refreshing thing because one it was uh, It's not like it was easy, but it was, um, it was very helpful. And I definitely get what you're saying with the thing where people are saying like, okay, I have this intuition, but if I just say what the intuition is, it's not going to sound smart enough. Um, and well, obviously, you know, like intelligence is a prized entity, especially in fields like ours where it's presumably required. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess, I, I think, I think there is that sort of that sort of social aspect where people are trying to dress things up. Um, but I also saw in your work, because basically in your papers, you do try to describe the intuition behind what you're doing. Um. In fact, sometimes you say intuitively this or intuitively that. Um, Is there, is intuition, do you think that there's any divide between, for example, like the more mathematical types of scientific research versus, uh, for example, the more observational, less, less mathematically rigorous, where essentially you can get away with intuition more, or do you think everyone tries to dress it up? Because I mean, I've read some sociology papers that take something that takes like one sentence to say and takes like a paragraph to make it obscure. What's your call?
0: Um, well, the thing about me is that I, I, I my research is very inter- interdisciplinary. Um, I have seen research in very, many different types of fields from like the more formal, for example, mathematical and statistical research to engineering and also economic research. Every field has this norm and everybody, I mean, it happens that if they don't peek outside of their field, of the their research, they have a very specific idea of how papers should be written, which varies a lot across the different fields. Um for uh, I think in mathematical papers, especially in the more pure side of the math, um it, the papers tends to be very just rigorous, like you need to quote um, papers theorems and um, and then you prove theorems and that's about it. you don't there's no need to to justify why this problem is important at all and it seems like everybody should get it even though it's not obvious at all. And then there is the, for example, the engineering side of it you many times you just you don't invent new methodologies for like if there are new theories coming out from, uh, the side of mathematics or uh, statistics, you just apply it and say, hey, it works in my problem, and that's a paper. So you don't have to invent anything, but as long as you say, hey, this is a shiny new, new method, and, um, and, and therefore it's we like, we kind of write an application paper, and that's it. And it can get published. Um, so so, so you, you only need to show that there's something methodologically new, even though it's not yours. So it's the 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 type of papers out there are is very a great deal um so yeah I, so this is um my observation
1: yeah, cool um what sort of intuitions because you do write when you your papers at least the ones that I've read, you do try to give people a glimpse into the int- intuition um I don't feel as if you attempt to well, how about this? I think the work that you do is sufficiently complex, even for people with PhDs, that you don't need to make it sound any smarter or complex than it is. Um, and so I I think in your work, you do try to provide that intuition. What are the types of ways that you try to provide that intuition? Because um, for example, uh, I've seen, I've seen where essentially you're talking about these alternative methods where they use essentially like, uh, I'm not sure how, how deep we want to go into this, but like, you know, like tangential, like tangents across the subspace. And it's like, okay, well that sort of like twists and warps what the actual, I will say loosely with the response function are, what the real, what the true underlying function is. Um, so effectively you're given this idea that, and you showed even visually how this worked where effectively you have this thing and you can see that um, these approximations sort of warp the intuition or warp the aspect. Is that, how do how do you approach giving people intuition in your own work?
0: I mean, the the GPS paper is actually very abstract and mathematical, and also it's 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 going to a, a math outlet. Uh, but for every paper I write, I, I try to use a tone that is not so like cold and strict, but rather I try to explain things before I go into the technical stuff. So you can have an understanding before we actually go to the math. Um, I think this is in general a good idea, and also, um, uh, um, well, I mean it's it's it's, it's just a very minor, minor thing about how I write my papers. I, I try to use um, uh, first person uh, uh, um, uh, tone so that it's it's it sounds more closer to the audience. Um, but anyway. Um, uh, the well, for for math papers, you have to be formal. Otherwise, it's it's not going to be published because um, people just. I mean, you need to be rigorous. Uh, that's the bare minimum. But on the other hand, if you only talk about the 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 formal the symbols and uh, how you prove things, then really, it people will take a hard time understanding it. The, the starting point of this for example the, the gps paper is how people can use it to speed up simulations and for people in for example in, in science and mostly engineering they don't really understand that i mean if you talk about manifold people just shy away from it but um uh, but you you want to have it have a better appeal to the audience so at least you want your paper to be understandable to I mean, in part, to the audience. Um, so so that's how I see um, uh, uh, how I try to explain things.
1: Yeah, actually, it's funny when you say, it's like, oh, I wrote these quotes uh, down a long time ago. Um, because what you just said, you had this other quote, says, um, which is pretty much mirroring what you said before. Mathematical proof comes after intuition. We need our good intuition to take us one step further than was strictly stated by the models to broaden the results. Proof might be impossible, or at least drastically more technical. Um, so, I, I it does seem. I, I definitely agree. Where you have to set the stage for what people have. Um, and even a lot of mathematical conjectures, people had this intuition that something was true long before they could prove it. Um, and so, the, this idea that I think that like mathematical proofs are simply being like etched out of the stone, um, where effectively they're just coming through these things by thinking. Purely deductively, and they just do math, and they happen to come across things that didn't seem to me to be the actual psychological mechanism where people have an intuition about how the mathematics will work, and then they figure it out. And I think science is very similar, where people have this intuition about what the underlying phenomena are, um, and then they study and figure out if they're right.
0: Yeah, um, I think this. Uh, I think intuition definitely comes up more often in science than in math. Um, in science, you, your goal is to, to find something useful. In math, you want to find something that is true. So, so it's, it's, it, it comes, as intuition, it comes up more often in science. I mean, for example, one, one example I can give is uh, in my undergrad, I studied mechanics. So, so one thing that is just being talked around the, the community is uh, a, a concept called boundary layers. So, so the idea is, uh, is that, I mean, fluid dynamics can be, I mean, it's it's tough. I mean, if you consider only the simple problems, for example, like slow, like fluids flowing in your water pipe, if the speed is really slow, you can describe, describe it basically with a parabola. And that's really simple. But... Well, as as soon as you get to something more complex, for example, you increase the uh, speed, then you have a complex geometry. Things get hard to study. So, so the concept of boundary layer is that um, it's it's, uh, it's it is proposed by a great uh, fluid mechanic uh, a scientist. And so the idea is that say no, so you have an object that is non fluid, and then if you have, for example, incoming flow coming. Uh, um pass it then how do you study the, the flow around that and so basically if if you have everything you, previously this problem has been very difficult, but what he suggested is that hey um the boundary layer is there so 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 there's flow far away from the the object you want to study, which basically does not um it does not Change much due to the, the geometry of this object. But there was a thin layer of fluid attached close to this object that separates what is away from the fluid field away from it and the fluid field um, close to it. There is was, a, so this separation of analysis makes it makes the problem much more tractable. Even, I mean, when this paper was originally published in early uh, to, uh nine. 19th uh, and 20th century, the math is not there. They're just pure concept, and it is. I mean, it basically sounds so intuitive that people would just say this must be right, um, and then there are further research going on to 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 show them to provide a mathematical structure to it, right? and people actually find out that many things in the original paper was wrong, but this the concept of boundary layer sticks. So, so that, that is an example of intuition helps the progression of field.
1: Yeah, that, that is a really cool example. Hey folks, we're a few minutes into the show. This is usually the part where the podcaster talks about their sponsor or something. I'm not gonna do that, but I will ask two things. One, if you leave a like or a dislike based on your preference, and also let me know what you think about this topic. And also, what topics you like discussed on future episodes of the show. That's it. Enjoy the episode. Um, on that note, um, I guess you've sort of talked about this. You know, like how intuition makes it possible for discover these truths, um, even if they aren't mathematically rigorous. Um, do you think that? Um, do you think that there is a different way that mathematicians think and dissect problems compared to? Uh, empirical science, because I mean, I'll say I'll say this, um, like, I truly believe that like what mathematics says is true. Like, you know, it is, it is definitionally true. It is it is that deductive, undoubtedly true. Um, And it's hard to think that that could ever not be quite useful. But I guess the idea is, you know, when you have these complex systems, it's very hard, The reason mathematics is true is because it's so friggin rigorous that it doesn't take missteps. And the problem is that the number of the amount of complexity that you need to encompass, you know, the world and those types of phenomena, like you're bound. You it's essentially beyond our capabilities to encapsulate so many of these important things with mathematics. Um, So mathematics creates strength in the fact that we can believe it to be true. Is also a massive hurdle in order for it to be like empirically useful, um, for many things.
0: Yeah. Um, well, the, the difference between mathematical thinking and scientific thinking, uh, to me, is that the being uh, well, uh, the, the great uh, uh, mathematician Ingrid Devoltsch in, in the Duke Math Department it has this uh, course about applied math. It's called Intro to Applied Math. Um, you will see in the syllabus that um, this course is about how useful uh, uh, math comes up in different fields of um, science and engineering, and, and there is term that in that description that sticks to my mind is that watertight proof. That is, your logic has to be watertight. Um, that this is a required. Um, part of mathematical teaching, so which is not necessarily so in science. Um, you, you, in science, I think it's more important you find something useful instead of saying the logic is right. You don't start with thinking, is this uh, is this logic correct? Um, oftentimes, the, the order is the opposite in science than in math. I think that's one of the main differences.
1: Yeah. And um, I I like the idea of the watertight proof because one uh, proof, because basically um, one, it does, there's only one type of logic that is truly watertight and that is deductive reasoning. And uh, what isn't watertight and this, you know, know, something that bothered even, you know, David Hume came up with this, the problem of induction or effectively observationally, there's no amount of observation that we can do that will fundamentally resolve ourselves from the problem of induction, where essentially observationally, um, we have no guarantee that things will continue to act the same way that they do. So we'll never have a truly watertight scientific theory. Um, it, 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 things can change. Um, yeah. um, yeah, And I'm some, some of our underlying scientific theories literally like in the, uh, in the 19th century when they started, you know, digging up fossils. So essentially we had this, uh, coming together of both geological knowledge and sort of that like the Darwinian evolutionary knowledge. I and mean, we had come up with this idea, it's like, okay, we're gonna pretty much have to have this this uh primary assumption that the universe will continue to work the way it does. Um and without that we can't even do like the smallest type of science. Um
0: yeah uh what I like to add is that um if you, if you look at, say, for example, in, in, in college, I did my undergrad in big University and we have a very strict, even though I'm not, my undergrad is not a math major, we are very strict about what math we teach and we have very good uh, teachers for, for math. For example, the, the mathematical analysis, basically, uh, calculus and more advanced type of it mm-hmm. is there are three books. Each of them is very small, uh, very thin, but actually, if you, the teacher will tell you that don't judge the book by the the volume of this. It's, it's especially for for math co- courses. It's a lot of work put into it, but they're just organized in such a way that everything is a succinct, a succinct and it's well ordered, so that it it tricks you into thinking it is uh, not so much. But that that's the that's that shows the character, characteristics of math is that. There are a lot of work going into it, but when you present it, you organize it and you shrink it to the essence. But it's always, almost always the case is the after product of, um, uh, uh, of a discovery. The ordering and, and, and the reducing comes afterwards. So, so to me, there are many things, uh, for, uh, there, there are many useful concepts that comes up in the process, but when it comes into math, it's almost as an after product, and you present it in a way that's never what happens as, as it comes
1: yeah uh can we Can I just ask you so what 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 undergraduate course or degree were you pursuing uh first well
0: it, it was called uh engineering engineering mechanics well it's basically mechanics well it according to the uh the the, the um well the chinese um, uh, 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 education followed the USSR system, which combines math with mechanics. Uh, m- back the mechanics is considered as part of black math. So the good tradition of teaching mechanics, you have, a, you need to have a very solid mathematical background. So, so yeah, that's the, that's the tradition.
1: Yeah. That's interesting because, um, I can't help, but think, um, you know, In a lot of U.S. universities, for example, uh, especially in the humanities, where they essentially say, like, you're now out of high school, uh, you're done learning math. And the only time you might have to do it is you have to take, I don't know, a, uh, what are those called, the required, like, your variety courses or whatever. Um, So since you get your liberal arts degree by, you do mainly humanities, for example, and then you do, like, two science courses and you take a stats course and that's done. And I think that people they're doing such a massive disservice to people by not having them continue their mathematical education and continue to build that, that intuition, because effectively this is a logical foundation and the ability to sort of think about things in a mathematical, um, in a mathematical context, like it doesn't matter whether or not you're doing, um, you know, something like physics and mechanics versus you're doing something like biomedical engineering versus something like, I don't know, uh, zoology, um, which actually has plenty of math in it too when they're trying to figure out animal mechanics. But the idea is um, there might be this concept that there's levels of math that you need to know to excel at a certain field and that it sort of ends and peters out, has that exponential decay. And at some point it's effectively zero. It's like, I I think you're screwing people over in that. Like everyone needs to know math and think about these things because it fundamentally changed the way you think it's like coding, where the process of formally going through and constructing code is to me very much the same way that you would formally go through and construct some logical argument. Um, And that's why I was interested in what you're doing so effectively, trying to figure out um, what the bounds were on people thinking that you need a lot of math. Um, Mechanics, though, seems like a very obvious one. Um, Yeah, actually, that that brings me up to your next quote. which I thought was really fun. It's on abstract thinking. Um, and you say, abstract thinking, i.e. manipulating vague concepts in the mind, helps one do rewarding research. This is because once concepts get well-defined and problems clearly formulated, pioneering work must have been done. According to convexity of cost function, the remaining reward in this research area is limited, while the cost is prohibitively high. So again, I guess the reason that it reminded me of that is because obviously I think the mathematics that you're talking about is that's what allows us to manipulate abstract concepts. So we abstract a way to get to the math, we can manipulate it in that space and move back down. Um, but I wanted to hear about this convexity of the cost function. Um, I like how you basically talk about abstract ideas and then you use an abstract mathematical idea to describe the extra abstraction itself, um, which, which was really funny. Um, but what what is this cost function um, and why is it convex?
0: Well, um, so, 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 I mean, when I wrote this, I, I was deep into economics, um, so, so they use the, the concept of convexity and concavity a lot, um, so, so the idea, I mean, I, let, let me try to, let's not stick with the, the convexity uh, or concavity um, too much, but it's just the, the underlying idea is very economical uh in, in economics, it's called law of diminishing returns it's one of the fundamental laws in, in economics um there aren't that many fundamental things in economics but this is one of them uh, which basically says i mean the the, 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 the um oh, so so i i think one of the most basic uh foundations of economics is that people are rational i mean uh, uh well, this is not always true as the recent research are trying to argue, but um, in this case, um, the people are researchers and um, people who do research. Are, we kind of reasonably assume that they are more rational than the others. But, uh, sort of, so applied to the scientific discovery, people tend to sort problems from easy and important to ones that are tough and more fringe. So you see what, when people get into a field, there are many problems they can choose from and they will sort things in this order. So that the ranking of the reward will be from high to low. You will pick the highest reward first and then goes into that order. So
1: with like a knapsack problem, it's like a knapsack optimization.
0: Yeah. So, so as long as people are rational, we do this type of sorting, that creates the um evolution of rewarding I mean the marginal I mean marginal as as is a concept that basically the uh, the gradual increments of the reward will decreases so this is the diminution, uh, the, the law of diminishing returns and if you uh, so this is a monotonic function that goes down. If you in integrate that, you would have a, uh, a concave function. So, so that's that's your total reward. Um, but anyway, the, the basic idea is that because people do this type of sorting, they pick the highest rewarding thing first. What comes next it will always be less rewarding or almost, almost always less rewarding than what comes first, what has already been discovered. Um, so, so yeah, th- uh, that's that's what goes into that, uh, uh, that quote.
1: Yeah, so, like, just just to recap, because I think, um, so the law of diminishing returns, I think it was probably pioneered by, like, Carl Menger, I suspect. So, like, I think he's, like, 19th century German uh, economist. And that original law of diminishing returns is something around the idea that what's interesting about this concept, I think, is that it actually went hand in hand with people coming to realization that value is subjective in economics. So effectively it's like uh, two apples is not worth twice as much as one apple and if you have a million apples um it's not a million times more valuable to that one individual. So they want it less and less. Similar to the idea that it's like a diamond in a diamond in the desert is not worth as much as um as a glass of water. Actually, in that case, I might be quoting uh lyrics from the Prince of Egypt musical, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, again, that the idea that, um, yeah, no, the, the Prince of Egypt was like a lake of gold in the desert is worth less than a cool, fresh spring or something like that. But again, the idea is that, um, the value of these things change depending on what quantity and whatever your subjective needs are. Um, and so here are the, uh, I like this diminishing returns thing. Cause effectively, if you're, is the idea that if you're extremely pioneering, you're going to get this very high rate of return and as more people jump on it. They're only going to be incrementally adding to it. And then the cost pr- prohibition is the idea that, um, and uh, that I'm asking you, um, is it the, the fact that we can't keep piling on more and more researchers because effectively it's costing more researchers and having less and less in return until eventually it's saturated.
0: Um. Well, honestly, the two the, the concepts uh, in economics, one is cost, one is reward, then- it's it's really you can consider them as mirroring each other. So so the cost is the, 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 the opposite of the reward. So you can separate them, but you can also consider them as the same thing. So so one thing is uh, as I explained, the, the reward of the problem itself. If we want to talk about the cost as a separate concepts, then for example, it does pile up um, as as if as for example, the late commerce. If you want, if they want to do some research, they need to read incrementally more papers than what people have come before them. So it has the time they need to spend to ever start research in that field is is going to be increasing over time.
1: Oh yeah, that's that's a really good point. It uh, it's uh that that the setup cost to make progress becomes higher and higher. It's sort of why, effectively, you know, um, in the like eighteenth century someone could be extremely learned by having covered like a few books and effectively they pretty much know all there is in human knowledge or to catch up to it. And I think there's some prominent uh, mathematician I heard who said the reason he started in uh, topology was uh, no no, it's combinatorics, was because effectively you didn't have to do as much to get up to the uh, cutting edge of the field because it was, it was underdeveloped at the time. So that's a really interesting point. Um, and just as a quick thing, Since I I know that you've, uh, that you think a lot about economics, when I originally read that quote about the idea that, um, uh, when the problems are well formulated, and pioneering work must've been done, I was actually thinking about, um, like efficiency frontiers where effectively, if you have the frontier of scientific knowledge that when people work within the frontier, which means isn't, they aren't really advancing it. Um, that effectively the cost isn't that was sort of the cost that I was thinking. So it's sort of interesting that, um, and by the convexity of it, I was essentially thinking of it as like a convex efficiency frontier, and that it becomes harder and harder to find points outside of the efficiency frontier, which would then essentially mean like an increase in scientific knowledge.
0: Well, uh, that that will be a different concept. So, um, but the, if if you are talking about the periphery front, then. Yes, it's, it's, I mean, uh, one one thing, for example, when the proto-front comes up is if you uh, picture the space of problems, you put two axes uh, onto it. One is the reward, the other is the, the uh, one, one is the difficulty of it, the other is how important it is. Then you have this um, natural proto-front that the the low-hanging fruit will be on the bottom left, but then there are some um um so so everything on the left lower left of the the proto front will probably have been already done but the, what is left is depending on the degree the the more or less more difficult and uh, less important problems are left undone um so so that's that would be the case where you have a um uh a a, a, a um a front that is uh curve in the, in, a, in a space of problems.
1: That is very cool. Um, you mentioned latecomers and you had this quote uh, that says, "You know, more often latecomers cannot see the direction and intention which guided pioneers through the theoretic research. They're lost in the jungle of technicalities. Um, so a minute ago, you're talking about effectively they have to have such a, there's such a hurdle just to get involved. But is there more to it about getting lost in the technicalities where they've lost the direction, they've lost the intention?
0: Um well as I mentioned earlier, is well late commerce has it has a late disadvantage because there are so much more to catch up with. So it's um unless it's it's it takes more time to see through what is going on. And I think there's another point to it is that late commerce there's one tendency for people to do research, I mean, um, is to to put two ideas together basically do combinations um you can create a lot of things with combinations and in an extent they are novel so potentially you can publish but how important is that combination is a question that should be be asked Um, so so many in many scenarios such like combinations of things are Maybe like technically interesting and method- methodologically new, but the use of it, because the combination be- happens so rarely, the use of it becomes much more fringe. So, so that's, that's when people lose the, the, the importance of the questions they are asking.
1: Yeah, I was also wondering if this relates uh, to the back to your previous thoughts on intuition were effectively latecomers because there's such a body of technical results at the time. So effectively, they've got start at the beginning where you have essentially the intuition phase and then the intuition phase gets uh, ossified or uh, becomes more technical. And so effectively, then we have all these technical results. And so it's up at this peak. And then when a latecomer comes in, or we can just call it a newcomer, so it's a little bit less pejorative, but latecomer is just as good. That effectively, they're presented with all, now they don't only have the intuition, but there's this great body of technical aspects that they need to come to terms with. And so effectively, it's a bit of a misdirection that instead of having them focus on the intuition and saying, build from that, that we're saying, focus on the technical bits, which is essentially the end product. And so effectively, it's like people are looking at People are looking at, like, the canned spam and not looking at, you know, whatever's at the beginning of the production line. So it's the fact that they're busy saying, like, focus on this end result, not, or maybe better say saying, you're focusing on the paint of the car, not how the car is made. And the problem is with scientists, you're supposed to be figuring out how the car is made. So it's a little bit of a misdirection. Uh, Do those sort of ideas tie in the late comers missing the intuition and focusing on the mathematical rakers instead for example
0: yeah i I do agree with you
1: cool um so you you had another cool quote here which is um about uh pragmatism and this is something that i've i've been really looking forward to this uh question because uh i've been wondering about you and i'm uh, looking forward to having someone to discuss this with you say that um Uh, Pragmatic considerations of researchers slash scientists slash engineers um, include things like uh, industrial need, competition, challenge problems, funding, publication, graduation, tenure, et cetera. Um, Researchers who don't have pragmatic considerations often lack competence and get trapped. Um, I think there's something to this where, you know, what is the interplay between the pragmatism incompetence? Um, I always thought that like they both require critical reasoning and prioritization. Uh, But what do you think that interplay between pragmatism and competence is?
0: Um, So so the way science is done today is way different from what it's done in, for example, when science started in, for example, the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, Back then you have a bunch of um, rich people or people who born into rich families. They do have everything they need and if they happen to have the the curiosity and the smartness to conduct some research, they just do it. And they don't need to consider about how to raise funds and apply for grants and um to support themselves. Now it's very different. It's it's a profession where people who want to do um um discovery of knowledge, but they don't necessarily have the um the 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 support that comes for granted, so so the, this is where it comes literally from.
1: for granted. I, I like that. I like that play of words. Sorry, go, go oh. on. Sorry, but you're clever on that one. I, I just had to call that out. So go on. Sorry.
0: Yeah. Um. So uh, for now nowadays, people who want to do research, they do need to. For example, it, it's your real consideration varies across the stages from you're doing a student and doing um, early career researcher and also goes on when you get tenure. So they are very different considerations. I I, I think um, the question you asked is about the difference between or uh, and the relation between competence and um, pragmatism. I think there is there's a balance to it. Uh, Fundamentally, these two concepts are different. as the current understanding of how people do science, or there's a not new, um, newish field of science of science, um, the the current uh, understanding is that we would like to think people who do research, uh, researchers, as having a um, intrinsic quality as how good they are. We can understand that as competence, and there is other other things. For example. Um uh, for example, performance as of um how how many papers you produce and things like that, uh, but again, there are definitely more than two things, for example, how external things affect you. I, I think there are many external things that can affect your career, and you do need to consider that uh, so as um, so so you need to consider um, being pragmatic in a sense, but also keep it to yourself, try to produce things, you value most. for example, high-quality research. Um, You need to find different people take different positions on on these two topics, but I think you need to to find your own balance. Um, The reason why people need to be pragmatic is that to survive in the current academia, you need to be able to make a name for yourself and also get money so you can hire more students. And things like that, and and then you you get to pr- produce more papers and do more important research. But you cannot get lost into it and just ch- to chase the fame or chase the money. And, and and instead, you don't really do much of the fundamental field changing research. So I think it's the question to everybody who do research: that how pragmatic and um, do so-called pure, like before, like in, in in the earliest sense, how to be a good researcher. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, I was thinking a little bit about sort of like the stereotype of where you might have someone who is excellent at doing some very foundational research, but it basically just doesn't have anything to do with what like the rest of the world cares about. And so the idea is that they might be obviously highly intelligent. Um, but they're not being pragmatic in any sense that, like, for example, they could be applying their mind to a different problem, that would be of extreme use to other people. Um, and at the same time, like, I know that there's some people who say, you know, sometimes you have to do research for research's sake, uh, just to see where it leads. And they have examples like some studies of, like, I don't know, a zebra fish, led to, I don't know bioluminescent example results that then allowed us to create some new cancer therapy by being able to target and figure out where cells are, things like that. Um, and I've probably just conflated like five different stories together, but you know, again, it's the idea. It's like people doing something completely random, not completely random. They're doing something in an off topic field and they managed to make a great innovation in a related field. Um, but I'm not sure that if those examples are frequent enough to warrant people saying that we're not going to have like pragmatism like that there should be more of a direction. Um, Do you think that people who are good at being pragmatic are actually more skilled in general, as scientists as in the same skill that makes you able to make pragmatic decisions also helps you make good scientific decisions?
0: Um, I do think there are correlations to that. Um, Because... Part of the competence is to, for you to figure out things that are important and being pragmatic do help you to do good research. Then, if you can figure that, um, by being to more or less pragmatic, uh, in your work, you put yourself in a better position to do better research, then I think though if you can do good, you're, you're a good, um, uh at uh being pragmatic you that shows something about your in your intrinsic quality and how good you are in doing research
1: yeah i mean i tend to agree and also you know the idea is like it's correlated you know it doesn't have to perfectly align but it's hard not to think that the capacity to critically evaluate um one's own career is completely unrelated to your ability to critically evaluate and prioritize, you know, which aspects of science you work on. Um, it seems to me that there are prioritization tasks um, and that those should be evaluated. Um, if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about the interplay between math and science. Because um, you, you have this quote that says, you know, uh, a good scientific research has three indispensable tasks. the You observe the real world phenomena re- objectively. You construct a formal system that's simple and consistent. And then you map between the physical and the formal systems bijectively. Um, again, I, I really like how you in, insert uh, a mathematical description into this, but it's useful. Uh, let's Can you talk a little bit more about this bijective relationship between the physical systems and the formal systems?
0: Well, um, I, I do use this term uh, bijection in, uh, intentionally. But, but, but I mean, even though it's not necessarily mathematically rigorous, but I think it's useful to think it that way because uh, all the um, essential uh, character, uh, characteristics are, are there. So, um, so when I talk about this, is when if you do a scientific research, you want to have a um, you want to have a theory to it. So there is the real world on one side and there is a theory on the other side. Um, as for me, how I see re-scientific study is that um, you do start from observations in the real world and then you move on, move into some formal version of it, try to discover things. And then the things you discovered should be able to inform you about how the real world works so we can make predictions and thing, understanding and things like that. So uh, so that's how I see every scientific theory should be going. Um, the the this comes in the relation between math and science. Math, as I see it, is basically a collection of formal science or symbolic systems. And that's the fun that makes the core of a scientific theory. And it's only becomes useful if you make that relate to something that happens in the real world. Um, but uh, on the other hand, the observations you make in, in in the real world needs to have something that is simple and potentially informative uh, to guide your discoveries. So, so they are close in this sense. Math and science are closely related to each other. Um, one thing I can one example I can give you is about my PhD research. Um what I for my dissertation I did uh, analyze how um drivers behave. Um specifically, I, I studied New York City. I was very fascinated by the, the the um iconic yellow caps. Um so what I have is some data sets that I can analyze. It's a lot of them like about five years of how all the yellow caps drive around the city. So so I do have the data. Uh, which are observations? And then I so I start thinking, I'm, I'm I'm asking I was asking the question, how drivers decide where to go when when they um, move around in the city during the day? So so I can um, have a, I create a model in my in my mind how they make decisions, which becomes a formal model. And then that, Specifically, that's a game model or game theoretic model. If you form that, people make decisions, for example, to in, to maximize their income, then there comes a prediction uh, that is called a equilibrium. That prediction, if you have this bijective relation between the math and, uh, and and the real world, everything in the real world should correspond to something in your model and everything you deduced from that model should have some implication in the real world. So the predictions you get should be able to give it a direction of what you should observe in your data set. And with that completes the loop of scientific discovery and how you predict people will behave in the real world.
1: Hey everyone, we're in the final stretch of our episode and I'd really appreciate it if you could give me feedback on three things. First, what was your favorite question of the episode? What did I do right? Secondly, which questions should I have asked that I failed to? And third, what questions did this conversation bring up that you'd like answered in the future? Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the episode. So does this bijective aspect, uh, does this relate to the idea of like the dualism? Uh, how, how do we sort of, can we incorporate the idea of dualism more fully in this uh, interface between, um, you know, the math and the science, the um, the formal system and the physical system?
0: Yeah, um, if you, actually, if you, if you check my wiki, there is, um, there is a, I mean, there actually are two pages. One is about, one is called the principle of duality, and the other is more specifically about duality theorems in optimization. So, so I I think you can, you can check the first. Um, it's basically how duality is fundamental in different, um, areas of math, and, um, it also is definitely also very related to science, but, specifically um i put this n- nice little um diagram that i created so so there is a primer uh, uh, so basically there are two two things one thing is called a primal and the other is called a dual um so so these two things basically you uh, uh two things forms the, the duality um mathematically there is definitely a theory um you can you, you can delve into it, it's it's very formal, but it's, the key idea is basically that um, everything, as long as you establish a duality or a bijection, um, things that's difficult or may be difficult in one um, world or one, in one uh, side can be simple on the other side. So But because there is a duality connection, everything we discovered in one side has an equal part on the other side. So whenever you can proceed easily, you can map it back to the side where you cannot proceed. So you can always make your progress feasible on one side or the other. So that's the beauty of it.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of uh, uh, the first place where I was introduced to uh, duals was in linear programming. And the idea is that effectively, um, and I'll pop up a picture. But um, the idea is that effectively, you could have this very complex linear program on one side, and uh, you know it would have its its op- optimal point um, at some at some uh, vertex. Um, so effectively, people can imagine that like there's this sort of convex space, and you get a convex space defined by linear borders and um, It'll find its point, but the idea is that no matter how complex it could be, there's actually a dual representation that you could solve equally as well, but would be vastly simpler. Um, well, you know, it's isn't like easier to read and things like that. Um, and that effectively, that the relationship is effectively, um, and it's entirely mathematical. And the idea is that effectively, you take a, you reverse the objective function and the uh, the constraints, and you essentially you flip these things on their head. And that, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, and that's what creates this, just duality and that, that, the amazing bit, like the bit of the magic of mathematics is that they meet at the same point, you know, like there, there's the case where it's not just that you can re reconstruct this thing in a reliable way, but it's like, oh, and they solve the exact same thing. Um,
0: yeah, well, <laughs> if you read those things in, in papers and and research, um, it's, it's hard to get an intuitive picture of it not every scientific discovery has a say video about it. Um, so, but, but yeah, the, it's, it's, it is duality is a very beautiful thing and, um, uh, it's, it's really helps in many situations.
1: Yeah. And I just, again, uh, on that helpfulness, the, the thing that caught me about what you're talking about was, you know, it, that if you get stuck in one of these domains, you can try switching to the dual, um, which is very similar. So effectively, you know, you could take this complex linear program, you switch it to the dual, it becomes simpler and you can make progress that way. Um, and similarly, in scientific research, there's plenty of times where you need a mathematical abstraction to make progress, where effectively you say like, oh, okay, this is just too complex as it is. I'm going to create a mathematical abstraction. I'll make progress in this domain, see how far I get. And then you switch back into the scientific domain and you start working with that and you create new observations. And then those new observations can help feed into how you need to refine your sort of your more formal representation. So I think it's a very beautiful way, a debugging system, if you will, of logic where you flip between these two things and I think one of the challenges is for scientific research is unlike that linear program where there's that sort of perfect map mapping where they literally come together, like, uh, that, that, uh, uh that thing in the Sistine Chapel, you know, that the, the, the hands of the fingers touch yeah. um, that, that that that's what, that's what I think of. And, but in science, it doesn't perfectly map. So it's effectively that sort of inductive element. There's a bit, there's like a, there's a distribution at the point where the fingers touch. Um, and that's where like that's where the adventure is you know that that's where all that excitement is um so i th- i thought that's a very beautiful way to describe it did i miss anything on that concept because I, I um is there is there anything else to discuss about that that nature of duality
0: no i think it's i think it's it's a pretty good discussion it's it's yeah it, we'll cover most of it
1: very cool um so let's talk about a bit about falsification. Um, so effectively, um, you know, you can have, you can falsify an argument, for example. Um, and you have a formal logical system, you know, um, does that change this logical system? So like, how does the falsification interact with these systems? So You have the formal system, you have the sort of the physical system. Um, does falsification come only via evidence or does it come via logic or both?
0: Um, so, so scientific discovery, every scientific discovery, every scientific theory should be falsifiable by evidence, but you hope it is not falsified by evidence. But a scientific theory should never be falsified by logic, because if if, if, if you think about it, if, if it can be falsified by logic, it's basically wrong. It's impossible to hold. So, um, so, if, if you figure your, uh, your your theory is is logically incorrect, then you just give it up and, and move on to something else. Um, yeah.
1: Okay. So, uh, just to be clear, when you say cannot be, you mean that uh, if you have a scientific theory and it's already falsified by logic, it should be thrown out. Like that. That's a sufficient condition to throw out a scientific theory. Um, Whereas, for example, um, I mean, I guess I'm thinking between like necessary and sufficiency. So we have like a logic based falsification versus a evidence based falsification, um, and that if you have scientific theory that can be falsified just via the your line of argumentation, that it can be thrown out right away. Is that is that at least the first part of what you're saying?
0: Yeah. Um... It it is the case. So 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 in, in science, for example, in physics, there there are many so called thought experiments. I mean, so, so the, the idea is that um, it's in science, things and uh, theories should be falsified by observations or experiments. But thought experiments is a play on that, saying that I mean, you, you can only you, you just need to think about it, reasoning, arguing by logic, and see if that is that is correct or not. Um, so if a scientific theory can be false, uh, is falsified by logic, there is something wrong about it. I'm not saying that you should just throw it away, but in, because in science, it's, it's not, it's, it's not, um, exactly math. Oftentimes, you, if, if it is, it is logically incorrect, maybe we just go back and reframe your, your theory. And in, in that case, that may be a valid theory.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess one of the problems with like falsification and rejection is that it brings up, it's a bit too binary to how most scientific research progresses, you know, where it's not, um, it's not, it's, it's not, it's a non-binary essentially like models are updated. They're corrected. They are revised. Um, rarely, like technically they're being thrown out in favor of a slightly different model, but I think sort of that more of that continuum in the revision process is a better one. You know, it's not like um, the heliocentric theory versus a uh, geocentric type stuff, where effectively it's like no one just really needs to chuck out the other. But it's more like okay, we we've expanded our boundary. It has a little bit more detail. It's like a more like a more like a we have like our hundredth order approximation, and then it goes into the hundred first order approximation of what uh, what reality is. But yeah, no, I, th- I think that I think that is an I- interesting point. Um, one thing that you talk about is that like scientific concepts, uh, you say, must be measurable unless irreducibly useful. Um, and I was wondering what is that? What are sort of like irreducibly useful scientific concepts? Um, Are they analogous to like the postulates of mathematics? Um, so for example, what, um, one of the sort of irreducible assumptions of science that I think that exists are essentially the like um uh the ones that uh the uniformity of uh the universe or effectively that the same physics and the same world and the same scientific process that exists now like continues to exist I think that's like um obviously I can't prove it empirically but it's an essential assumption similar to like in geometry how a line is the shortest distance between two points and we we need some, essential assumptions before going ahead
0: yeah um so so yeah you can you can call those irreducibly useful concepts either postulates or just primitives um so in for example in physics there's this i mean everybody knows energy it's it comes very intuitive and i think people ever people think it, it should be there um but the, the term if, if you go deep into it energy this thing this concept does not exist just people think it should be there and there's attached with uh, attached to it is the is the, the the called conservation of energy um so so it's essentially people think there there's this quantity um that should not change during all kinds of processes so it should be conserved um and this is useful and but as uh, for example as physics progresses we for we we used to have for example kinetic energy and thermal energy and all other things there are different types of energies oftentimes if you look into the history of, of physics it, energy often uh, whenever the conservation of energy does not hold people just say there must be another form of energy and then you in the pro- in the process, you maintain the truth of conservation of energy, but you add more content to it. So it's almost so. This is a primitive concept that you all you're always trying to make it hold because you think it should be correct. Another example is for also in also in physics. is symmetry. Symmetry is a very important concept, um, and sometimes it is essential because symmetry simplifies things. And um often there are cases when the symmetry is basically a convention instead instead of a falsifiable uh, truth. Um, so it has a special status in in in, in comparison with other uh, 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 statements in physics. For example, the speed of light, if you think about it, um, uh, Einstein has made this observation that the speed of light. In when it moves away from it and in, when you um, when it moves towards you, it is possible that the speed in the two directions are different, but you cannot falsify it. it is impossible so by convention, the speed of light is assumed to be the same in both directions, and that is another example where um we have to um Accept that there are things we cannot know.
1: Yeah, that's I really that's a really great example. I, I was not aware of that one, but again, also intuitively, it makes sense. Um, so well done. Uh, we're we're really closing closing the loop there. Um, so, like actually, on the top of closing the loop, so like we've just talked a lot about the interface between mathematics and science, and uh, one of your most recent papers is a very mathematically rich um description of a model for you know gaussian process subspace regression <clears throat> um but the science is there too it's not just a math paper the science is there too and the scientific motivation is rich um the intuition you give is very rich and frequently i uh many of the problems that i work on i actually do believe that there's essentially some sort of I'm not describe this well, but you'll get the intuition that there's some sort of like latent manifold that's actually like really kicking things around. And effectively, I would like to find that. Um, And so I guess, how do you bring these ideas to motivate your paper, like the Gaussian process subspace regression paper? Um, Does it make you think about the manifolds bit, the GPs, the model, obviously it all fits together, but how do you bring all these ideas ideas together to create a paper like you did, like you just did?
0: Well, um, I mean, for, for the GPS paper, honestly, it's, it's, um, it's a bit of luck, but also, uh, it's, it's a, it, it also takes revision and, um, refining how the model actually goes. I don't get it right from the beginning. Um, but. I would say when I start, I think this will be a mostly correct idea. So that's why I picked it. Um, well, I mean, these things ultimately fit together perfectly. So that's a bit of luck. And not every topic you work on ends up with a very beautiful uh, closure like this. But uh, I think it's a, it's a bit of both. Um, The reason why I pick, for example, Gaussian process is that Gaussian distributions are simple. They are analytically attractable. Um, Many of the analytical results we find uh, they they need this Gaussian distribution assumption. Um, Even though this is is, you you can say it is restrictive, but it is helpful. It is because once you have analytical results, you can Further uh, accelerate, for example, your computation. That is really helpful. That um, like there are many attributes to make a me- method um, successful. For example, theoretically um, uh, solid and computationally tractable, uh, and um, things like that. They don't necessarily go together, but you need. More, all of them to, to be successful. If you have a very uh, theoretically solid method, but it takes a long time to to, to actually run it, then nobody's going to use it. <laughs> so so that makes a bad method as well. Um, so 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 yeah. So 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 the, these are the factors that 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 comes into how um, in the process of making a paper. You decide on the methods you use uh, and how they make uh, how, how they uh, make uh, a, a complete piece that's gonna work out um, and many things like that. For there for example, when I first pictured my 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 method, that's the the prediction I get is really wrong. So I just figured there's something not right about it, but but then you you see okay so you for example in this case you you realize that the the, the Gaussian process you need to use the correlation structure which is re- if you don't use the correlation structure your predictions will be bad um, and then I re those those um, theorems and then make. Comp- uh, uh, Put that into a simple example. And it worked. It works much better. So so yeah. So these things also happen in, in the process of revising your method.
1: Yeah, i, I just as a quick thing, because maybe I didn't uh describe a previous bit. Well, when we're talking about the duality and hopping back and forth, when we talking about, you know, for example, like the analytical tractability working with the Gaussian uh Gaussian process. Um and that makes certain things analytically tractable because effectively it has you know this closed form solution uh, for making predictions, which is a non-trivial tool when we're trying to actually get progress. And so, getting back to our previous bit, that by having that bit resolved, simplified in the dual, effectively, it allows you to make progress on other aspects then that might have a higher priority. Um, so effectively, then you can go into like, okay, well, this makes the, the analytical aspect that makes the computation easier. And then I can then work on other aspects. Essentially, you can keep tinkering with other things uh, now that there's some like analytical tractability going forward. Um, but no, I think, that, I, I think that is really interesting. And uh, just for those who are worried that we're just going to allude to uh, this GPS paper, but never actually cover it. Uh, Ruta and I will be having a follow-up conversation dedicated specifically to um, Gaussian processes manifolds and the uh, the paper that he wrote. And um, given that he's been so kind as to guide us through these ideas, he, I'm sure he he will be very helpful in guiding us through and getting us up on that that learning ramp because I think that this uh, this manifold learning st- type of work is something that's very promising and conceptually very useful. Um, sorry, I, I didn't mean to editorialize for a long time there.
0: Well, it's all right.
1: <laughs> cool. Um, but yeah. So uh, maybe just uh just to uh quickly wrap up, um we've discussed a lot of things. What is one question that I forgot to ask?
0: Um No, I can't really think of any.
1: <laughs> oh perfect. Well, um I am the ideal host. Uh kudos to me. Um so I'll move on. Um in your in your lifetime, uh, what is the What is that like? One AI or scientific achievement that you'd like to see completed?
0: So, by this question, you don't mean what I would like to do, but rather what I would like to see.
1: Yeah, any anything open challenge, uh, all all comers.
0: Okay. Um. I've, I mean, I, let me just. I, I'll probably just be modest on this. Um. I would like to see how I mean a lot of time is short, right? Scientific discovery really takes time. So so let me just keep you,
1: you're you're a young strapping individual. You know, you, you've got some time. Um, um you might have a hundred years if you're lucky, given uh, scientific progress.
0: Well well one thing that is really exciting in the field of science um or scientific machine learning is that people are thinking whether we can, in a way, we're, we're trying to revolutionize how we learn things in science. Previously, we have this um, differential equations, some um, laws guided, uh, that are governing the, the how, how things move um, in the physical world. But we're, we're, those things takes years and still it's, it's hard to, to make progress on that. Currently, because we have, um, this trend in using um, computing power and uh, super powerful computer models for such as neural networks, where we're thinking whether we can actually learn physics or um, figure out f- uh, the, the, the the laws behind things that we don't already know. And what, that's a part of it. it is that learning what is behind things is one thing. But on the other hand, if we can make it make the sense of it, like making giving it a theory to the scientific side of um, deep learning and also making it interpretable. That is, I mean, previous discoveries are interpretable in that we have a, a nice little equations to it and we know w- what. Uh, each term's mean, but in case of neural networks, usually y- you, don't, you don't have theory. There's no a guarantee to it. And there is, a, for say, there's no guarantee to it. There is also no interpretability to it. It's very complex. Nobody knows what those numbers mean. Um, so yeah, if, if that can be done for scientific discovery, I think that it's, it's, a, it's a real revolution.
1: Very cool. I think that is, I think that is a good answer. Um, I, I, I am also, uh, in, on a similar vein, um, since I work in medical AI, very eager to start seeing, um, AI and machine learning actually bringing up new, like making true physiological discoveries, um, beyond just, you know, we can predict this and that other, but I, so my final question, which I asked everyone is, um, what is one topic or question that you would like for the statistical community to debate?
0: um that's a, that's a very challenging question. Um, uh, well so, so um, let me just throw one one random stuff. Uh, there, this one topic that I'm currently uh, obsessed with is how to learn a dynamical system from data. and but I mean, there is a very like basic understanding in terms of statistics of it there's not really much, there's no complete statistical theory behind it. I think it's in, in, that, in, in very much in need. Um, the challenge is that it, we are dealing with very high dimensional data and it's very, very high dimensional. And the, the samples you have is really small. And if so, so that makes the problem haven't been touched in statistics. Um, if people can put more focus on this type of um, um, uh, topic, that is, um, uh, like you, it, it, this, can be called a, um, a operator inference. Instead of learning a function or linear function, you're actually learning an operator. That uh, this by itself is more complex, but I think there is. Uh, there is a great use to it. I, I think there it needs to have a good th- statistical theory to it.
1: That is very that is very interesting. Um, if you don't mind me asking, I'll squeeze in one more thing. Would would your answer change if I instead said statistical community? I said scientific community. So, like, what would be a question like the scientific community as a whole to debate?
0: Oh, um. That, that 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 changes the whole thing um mm-hmm.
1: oh, i just, just like your answer so I, I just want to fear it's like oh you're here uh, i i'd like i i did want your that answer and i would like oh, i was just curious about this one too what do you think
0: oh uh, okay so so for for the science community in general um let's keep it in the same theme um one thing is i would like to, People to clarify what they actually mean by scientific machine learning or Mm physics-informed machine learning. Because oftentimes, I mean, it it sounds nice, but it it sounds nice in principle, but but there's just so much vagueness to it that everybody uses it, it it has lost its meaning. And if you don't really know what it means when you use it, why do you use it at all? Why don't you just use some other terms that you know what you mean? Um, yeah, it's, it needs some clarification.
1: That is very good. And uh, by, my question for the statistical community is, uh, Ruta Jong, great guy, love talking to him. Who's gonna give him tenure? That's what I want. Who's going to rush out and give this? this That's a good tenure? question. Very good question. Very good question. All right. Well, so it's out there. And so with that, uh, we have Ruta Jung from Duke University. Thanks again for a great conversation. I look forward to your next one.
0: Yeah, thanks, Ben.